Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Uh, just curious, how many of you read this chapter before coming here tonight? The ones who laugh did. Also curious, is there anyone here who's like, this is your first time? Okay, so let me explain something. Uh, what we do as a church is we've, we choose a book in the Bible. We've chosen 1 Samuel, and then logically the next one would be 2 Samuel. And we go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. On Wednesday nights, that's our Bible study. And it's great because you, you get the, the logical, this is how the story progresses, this is the context, this is God's redemptive plan for humanity in action as people sin and they fail and they make mistakes. God wants to redeem them and to heal them and to restore them. And what it sometimes does is it forces us to have conversations and talk through and study chapters that no one would choose to teach on. Like, no one goes, um, hey, man, will you fill in for Matt? Any, any chapter of the Bible you want to and be like, 2 Samuel 13 has been on my heart. No one does that. But here's the thing. This chapter, I think, is super, super important. And just so you know, if, if there are younger kids in here, it's not G-rated content tonight. But I think it's really important content because it's, you have a, a man, you have a father who's really failed, in a lot of ways at home, in, in a lot of ways dealing with sexual sin. And now you have the fallout from it. And it's so important that God dedicates quite a lot of text to it. It's a full chapter of information just on the fallout that happens. And so there's been, in the previous chapters, there's been huge battles. There's been giant just landscapes of war where Good men go into battle and they have these amazing victories and bad men are vanquished and, and we get very little information. It's like they went to war and came back victorious and you're like, well, I would like a little bit more information. But this chapter, it's just like time stops. Just everything comes to a screeching halt. It's almost like a horror movie as you read it because something in here really, really matters. It's really, really important. I think sometimes we can maybe trivialize sin as, oh, oh I, I've been forgiven, and so I'm just moving on, forgive and forget. Well, sometimes there's some serious consequences to sin, and sometimes it really, really hurts women, and it really, really hurts children, and that's what we're going to see from David, and I think God wants us to look at this and say, hey, this matters. This matters so much. This problem is so huge that the only way that it could be solved is that God himself would have to come and die for it. There's no other fix. There's no other heal. There's no other repayment other than that Jesus had to die for it. It's that serious sin is. And so we live in a culture today where sexual sin has really been normalized. Where sexual sin has just been kind of like, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. It's okay. It's fine. And in fact, our culture not only normalizes it, but it encourages it and celebrates it and takes pride in it. And your kids, when they're at school and every time they jump onto social media, they're being indoctrinated with that. That, hey, no, this is great. It's normal. It's okay. And anyone who says opposite of that is bigoted and they don't know what they're talking about and they need to be shunned and not spoken to anymore. <laughs> and so... I think tonight we're supposed to look at, this is where the Bible says sexual sin leads. And it, we're supposed to be uncomfortable when we read it. 
And we're supposed to be a little angry. We're supposed to be a little upset because it's wrong. And if we're not careful with how we lead our kids, you can be a rock star like David is. An absolute rock star in almost every single area of your life. But your kids, your sons, your daughters, they're gonna get ran over by sin. They're gonna be completely destroyed. And God does not want this chapter that we're gonna read tonight, he does not want that for you. He doesn't want this for your kids. He doesn't want it for your family. So I think we take a serious look at it and we make every effort to make sure this stuff doesn't show up in our home. And so David, last chapter, James taught last week, sees his neighbor, Bathsheba, bathing. He invites her over to the home. They get together. David has Uriah killed, her husband. Big, messy fallout. Terrible thing. Adulterer, all this gets brought to light. At the end of that chapter, there's, there's redemption for David in that. The David is forgiven by Jesus. And so when Jesus forgives you of your sin, are you forgiven? Yeah, 100%. When you give, when you repent, when you confess, when you give your sin to Jesus, he takes it from you. But David, he still gets consequences from that sin. The sword is not gonna leave David's home that there's going to be ongoing issues that persist in David's life because of the sin that he's engaged in. And so tonight, we're gonna get to see a little bit of, of the unfolding of all of that. So if you have your Bible, you can go to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Verse one is now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. So David, he has multiple wives, and he has multiple children with each of those wives. And so what we learn is Absalom and Tamar are siblings. Absalom is this guy who's going to come a huge focal point for the story in the next few chapters. And what the Bible tells us about Absalom is from the top of his head to the bottom of his foot, he is perfect looking, just absolutely handsome. He's literally the guy that when the nation looks at him, they say, that's a king. That's the guy I want to follow. Because when he goes to usurp the throne of his father, all the nation goes, well, that makes sense. He looks like a king. He sounds like a king. So Absalom is just a stud of a guy. And Tamar, having similar generics, she's just beautiful. She's just gorgeous beyond comparison. You can imagine if that's her brother. And so the two of them, they're, they're perfect from the top of head to toe. And Amnon, who's also one of David's sons, he starts to become infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar. He starts thinking about her. He, he begins to develop these really unhealthy ways of thinking about her. And he starts to think about her in ways that he shouldn't, and it becomes unchecked. And that way of thinking becomes something really evil in him. It progresses into something that it never should be. You know, for you and me, what you and I think about, what you and I choose to spend the most time dwelling on, what we put in our heads and, and we steep ourselves in, and that really dictates what you and I say, what you and I do, what you and I think is okay, what you and I think is not okay, what you and I celebrate, what you and I encourage. Whatever you and I spend the most time dwelling on and thinking on, that's going to dictate what we do. And so that's why 2 Corinthians 10.5, it commands us to take every thought obedient, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. 
that Christians are supposed to make an effort to, it's, it's not just, oh, you know, I was just thinking about whatever. No, I take that thought captive. There are thoughts that I ought to have and there are thoughts I ought not to have. That Philippians tells us there are certain things that you just weed out of your brain. That you say, no, I'm not going to think about that anymore. A believer is called to take their thoughts captive and then go through Philippians 4, 8 through 9 and ask themselves. When you're thinking about things, do you, we're supposed to say, okay, is this thing that's coming through my head, is this thing true? Whatever I'm dwelling on, whatever I'm thinking on, whatever I'm fascinated about, whatever just keeps coming up in my head, is this thing true, first of all? If it's not true, get it out of there. Okay, is this thing noble? Is this thing right? Is this thing lovely, admirable? Is it excellent or praiseworthy? You know, if Amnon had done that at any point, no, this is all wrong. No, this is not true. No, this is not noble. This is not right. This is not lovely. This isn't excellent. Purge ourselves of those things, what we're supposed to do as believers. We say, no, I'm going to take every thought captive in obedience to Jesus. And if it fails that, that test of, no, it's not true, it's not noble, it's not tr- praiseworthy, I'm supposed to go to God and say, God, will you transform me by renewing my mind? Will you help me take my thoughts captive? Will you take this, this thing keeps coming up in my head and I'm struggling with it. You ever just have things, maybe, maybe they're, I mean, you could, you could struggle with impure thoughts and just be like, it just keeps coming up. I just keep dwelling on it. It just keeps coming back. I just keep having this issue. Is there something wrong with me? Because I keep going to God and I keep asking him, hey, remove it from me, renew my mind, transform me, and this stuff just keeps coming back. Is there something wrong with me? Well, Ephesians would tell you and me that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that sometimes there is a demonic influence to what's going on in our heads, what we're thinking, that it's not just flesh and blood, it's not just a, a physical or mental thing. Sometimes it could be demonic. There's this thing called a knee drop, where I was watching online, there's a guy, he was climbing up, um, it was El Capitan Mountain down in, in the San Diego area. And he's climbing and he's got no climbing gear on. Which, you know, everything in my head is always risk and reward, right? Like if you're gonna be really risky, there better be a great reward. What reward is there for climbing a mountain with no climbing gear? Like, it'll be quick. Like, that's the only reward, you know? It won't last long. But so he's climbing, and he's got GoPro on, and he's talking to himself as he's climbing up. And it's really interesting to watch because I'm afraid of heights, and I don't understand that at all. And so he's climbing up, and he goes, oh, man, I'm just I'm so tired. He looks up, and there's like 100 more feet to go. And he looks down, and there's like 1,100 more feet to go. He goes, oh, man, I'm just getting jelly arm. And you can see it. You can see his arm shaking. And I'm thinking, this guy's going to die. Like, how is this allowed on YouTube? Well, he does something called a knee drop, where he found a crack in just the right way. He could drop his knee in there, twist it sideways, and then he just, he fell backwards and let his arms dangle so that they were below his head to just let the blood flow get back. And he just lets his arm rest and goes, oh, it feels so much better. And he just hung there. And I'm watching it going, and and you're just looking at the ground. And me, who's afraid of heights, I'm rocking my kid to sleep. That's when I watch YouTube. (laughs) And I'm sitting there just feeling nauseous, like, I'm going to pass out. Like, and so he's doing this. He's got the knee drop. He, he's, he's doing that. And then once he's recovered, once he's rested, he goes, okay. He gets up, gets out of the knee drop, and climbs up. And he's got victory. And it's like, dude, that was crazy. Okay, the Bible says there can be things that you and I keep going to, keep participating in, that become footholds for Satan that he would have a foothold in our life, that maybe it's certain things that we watch or movies that we, 
watch, certain things that we listen to, social media that we engage in, things where the enemy gets a knee drop. And that, in that moment, we can say, okay, God, will you, will you just take this from me? Will you re- renew my mind? Will you transform me? Will you help me to not think or dwell on those things anymore? It's not noble. It's not true. It's not excellent. It's not praiseworthy. God, will you remove it from me? But we still engage on our phones in the same way. We still watch the same things and talk the same ways. And we leave a foothold for the enemy. And the Bible says that sin is crouching at the door, waiting for those whom it can devour. And Satan just waits for an opportunity where he can have victory. That maybe there's some things that we need to go, okay, I need, I need to rid myself of this. I need to get rid of that foothold. I need to make sure that the enemy can't have that kind of access to me in my life anymore. But Amnon, he allows something evil to begin brewing in him in the way that he looks at his sister and the way that he thinks about her and it becomes something very, very wicked and wrong. And so in verse two, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. So they're cousins, Amnon and, and Jonadab. And Amnon has these thoughts that he struggles with. It's, it's consuming him. It's all that he can think about. He's just lusting after this poor girl. And so he confides all this information, all this struggle into his cousin, Jonadab. And when I was first making notes on this chapter, I just literally typed, cousins, gross. <laughs> what is up with this family? And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. Love does not dishonor others. It isn't self-seeking. He says, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar Come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat it from her hand. So the Bible tells us about Jonadab that he was a very crafty man. And that, that phrase, crafty man, the word there is hakam, which is normally rendered very positively, it's wise. Like if you were to read that in Hebrew, it's there's this man is wise. That he's a wise guy. But this isn't good wisdom, right? This isn't godly wisdom. He comes up with a plan that is unfortunately successful, he's very crafty, he's, he's wise, but it's not godly wisdom. James 3.15 would tell us that this isn't the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. And God in Jeremiah 4.22, he says, for my people are foolish. They know me not, they are stupid children. 
They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good, they know not. You know, it's possible to be wise and not know God. It's possible to be wise and completely miss out on the things that God says you are wise. It's possible to be wise and actually teach the opposite of what God says wisdom is. Like when I was going out to SOU, you have these professors. And and I'd grown up in the church and I'd grown up in Southern Oregon in a way. And and you kind of hear a story about Ashland and about the spiritual climate of the area and particularly about SOU. And kind of one ear out the other, like, okay, yeah, sure. You know, like, whatever. I'm sure it's not a big deal. So I start going to college out there. And you, uh, the head of the statistics program of SOU is a man who hates Jesus. Like it's, it's, he was going through a divorce with a Catholic woman, so it kind of came, it made sense, but she hate, he hated God. And like 70% of the conversation was about that. And he would mock Christian students to their face publicly in front of all the other students. It, it was just this like, oh my gosh, what is this? And, and he, to all of those very influential students, influential kids, people fresh out of high school, are now separated from home. They're here every single day are hearing this guy tell them people who are Christians are stupid children. People who are Christians are foolish. People who are Christian are just, they don't understand the way the world works. We know that that's not true anymore. And just every single day pounding that into their heads. He's a very, very smart dude. This man, as far as what he was supposed to be teaching, is probably one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. But he's wise in a really ungodly way and in indoctrinating kids that, no, that's not true. That stuff isn't right. I mean, there's things that, Lot, there's lots of things that the, at SOU they think is wise and they think is right and this is the direction that we ought to be thinking and that we ought to be heading and things low hanging fruit like gender and abortion and men don't have to be the leaders of their home stuff like that which I was even thinking like doesn't that last one kind of feel weird now to say like men need to be the leaders of their home 20 years ago unquestioned now doesn't that almost feel like oh, bro you can't say that does it kind of feel that way Well, here's what's fascinating, because I can say that, and it doesn't really matter what I believe, but statistics are really interesting because they show you data, and they they give you proof, and they make you go, huh, that, there seems to be a correlation there. If you have kids who are raised in a home and neither parent goes to church, there's a 6% chance that as an adult, they'll come to church on their own. I I thought 6%, that's pretty great. Well, what if they have a mom who's really committed to going to church? They're super involved, they're super invested, they come every week. Someone who's really invested come twice a week at Edgewater, it's every week. But they come as often as they can. Well, their kids have a 15% chance of coming to church when they're adults. Well, that's pretty great. Here's what's fascinating. If only the dad comes to church, only the dad comes to church, it jumps all the way up to 55% of those kids wanting to come back when they're adults. From 15 to 55. If you have both parents who are involved in the church and say church is important and we're going to do this as a family, it jumps all the way up to 72%. I just think that's wild. Well, here's the thing. So as I was thinking this through and thinking about, okay, SOU and and we're talking about gender and you think about abortion and all the things that are are in this world right now that seem like hot topics and, and the argument is, well, we know this now. 
And the counter argument is you're bigoted, you're outdated, your, your information's all old, it's all bad. You can't have ancient texts influence your current present day understanding of how the world works. Here's the thing that's fascinating. The wisdom of the world is always outdated. So when we get together for Christmas, we sing songs and we talk about three dudes who traveled a whole long way to come and see the incarnate God, Jesus, as a baby. They're called the what men? They're the wise men. These were magi. These were the educated elites. These were the pinnacle of understanding. These were the guys who would be teaching in the universities. These are, you would be teaching your kids what you heard these guys talk about. But they're astrologers. And we know that that stuff doesn't work. We know that that's not the way that you live life. We know that that's, not the, that's not the pinnacle of understanding anymore. If, if you were to go to someone and, and they say, well, I'm all about astrology, you go, oh, gosh. Right, yeah, I'm not gonna listen to them. But these were the wise men. Even though we know today that's not true, at the time, they thought it was true and they taught it it was true, but you go 100 years into the future, you go 100 years past that, and all the religious and all the scholarly elites of the day look completely ridiculous, don't they? They go, oh, that, that's, that's not true. Their, their children, their grandchildren go, I can't believe anyone ever believed that. I can't believe they ever taught that. For you and me, what we have to know, if, if it's not eternal, it's eternally out of date. That the stuff that they're teaching today is, hey, this is what's true, this is what's right, this is what's wise. In a hundred years, our grandkids, our great-grandkids are gonna go, I can't believe they ever taught that. I can't believe they ever thought that. I can't even believe they think that that would work. That doesn't work. If it's not eternal, it's eternally out of date. That today's elite minds, today's pinnacle of thinking, those people are tomorrow's astrologers. And so what we know to be true is if you look at God's word and you say, this, the Bible says this leads to human flourishing. This leads to joy. This leads to redemption. This leads to human flourishing. Man, that seems to still be working. 2,000 years later, not having to change the formula. Maybe there's something to it. I don't know. So you have this wise guy, Jonadab, and you have Amnon. And Amnon is struggling with this love that he has for his sister. And Jonadab's, Amnon's love is just as perverse as Jonadab's wisdom. It's all messed up. It's all misdefined. It's, all, it's almost like an irony brought up. You have a wise man, and you have a man who's in love, and both of them are completely earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And I, I kind of love that, honestly, in, in our, how the world is today. Just this little jab is, oh, I love her. And love wins, right? Sometimes love is earthly and unspiritual and demonic when you misdefine it. It's so a verse seven. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Do you just feel how the text just slowed down? So she kneaded the cake, and she baked the cake, 
and she took the pan out and she emptied it. Doesn't it just feel like a horror story now? Like there's just this tension growing. There's just this, something bad is about to happen. It's, it's all time has stopped. The Bible's saying, look at this. Face how evil this is. Verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she had brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. The Bible just slows down, just won't let you gloss over the information and just be like, oh, that happened, we're gonna move on. No, it, it forces you to watch as it happens, this horrible, evil thing. The first thing she says is no. She says no three times. She tries to get him to see the impact of what this is going to do to her. It's gonna bring shame on me. It's gonna, think about what it's gonna do for you. It's gonna make you an outrageous fool. Everyone's gonna know what you've done. And finally she says, hey, let's talk to the king. Let's get dad involved. He doesn't listen. He doesn't hear any of her appeals. And he rapes her. Tamar was attacked by someone she knew, someone she cared about, someone that she was willing to care for when he was sick. She was attacked by someone who should have had her best interest in mind. She was attacked by someone who should have been safe. My wife and I, we talk about this a, a lot and about how we're gonna raise our kids and um, what we're gonna let them do or go or be a part of. As Christians, we're called to be friendly to everyone, right? We're called to be friendly to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to our boss and to customers. And we're called to be friendly even to people who don't like us, even people who wish harm on us. We're called to be friendly to everybody. That's how we're supposed to be as believers. I think you're supposed to be friendly to everyone, but you're supposed to be friends with a very few. That there's very, very few people I would let watch my kids. Because it's 93% of kids who get sexually abused, it happens by someone they know. Someone that they should have been safe with. Someone that should have had their best interests in mind, 93%. So we're supposed to be friendly with everyone, but we're friends with a very, very few. Jesus is so serious about protecting kids that he says, if anyone leads my kids astray, it would be better that they had a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into a lake. That kids are the most valuable thing that God has entrusted you and me to. That our children, God has given you these little image bearers of him to raise and to direct them in the way that they should go so that they can 
can subdue the earth and that they can grow and multiply, that they can bring light to the community, that they can be Jesus followers themselves. This is the most important thing that God has entrusted to you to grow and to invest in and, and to watch become something. And that we're supposed to protect them with everything in us. Misplaced trust is the predator's most powerful resource. That when you and I trust someone that we should not have trusted with this investment that God has given to you and me, these kids, the most powerful resource a predator has is when we misplace our trust in someone. So there was this kids event that I'm at. We've got 200 grade schoolers. And we want parents to go out on a date night and have fun, and it's awesome. And as I'm there with my helpers, I see that there's someone I don't recognize there. And it's, this, it's a mom, and she looks great. She's totally normal. I'm sure she's fine. And I, so I come up to her, and I say, hey, um, drop-off is just about ending, but you can pick up at 7, which is in two hours. Um, so we'll see you at 7. And she goes, oh, I just want to make sure my kid settles in and I, that he's fine. And I'm, I go, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, drop-off is just about over. She goes, okay, okay, okay. So I, I go on and I come back and she's still here. So I go and I speak to her. I say, hey, uh, so pickups at seven. And she kind of just looks at me and I go, so you can go to Walmart or um, for a walk or uh, really whatever you want to do, but pickups at seven. And she goes, well, I, I just really, really want to be here and, and watch and just make sure that everything's good. I go, I totally get that. Here's the thing though. I, I got to make sure that all the kids are safe and I'm, I'm trying to direct 200 kids and I've got a bunch of adults here and I've got cameras and so I want you to trust that your kids are safe um, but I really can't have you here just because I don't know you. I don't even know your name. Um, and she goes, well, if I tell you my name, can I stay? And I go, well, no, because I need to have a background check on you. I'd, I'd have to meet with you. I, I, there's, a, there's a lot of things. She goes, well, I got a background check for my work. I can email it to you. That's not gonna work. I really didn't need you to go but you can come back at seven and um, that, that would be awesome. And so she leaves and she's a little upset, but that's okay. And so we play with kids for two hours and then at seven, she goes back to get her kids and she goes, can I get your name? I go, yeah, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want you to know that because of this conversation that we've had, your kids are totally safe because I would have this conversation with anybody. Anyone that I don't know who's here with the kids that you've entrusted us, I'm gonna ask them to leave because they don't belong. And my number one priority is your kids' safety. She goes, well, it just really hurt my heart that you would ask me to leave. And I go, well, I'm trying to protect their hearts. You know, like, I didn't say this to her, but the first, you know, this first place my brain goes is, there's one adult woman whose heart I'm trying to protect, and it's not yours, right? It's my wife's. And then I'm trying to protect all these little kids' hearts. But no, the number one thing for us as a church is we want to protect the kids that are here. We want kids to be safe because when kids are safe, they're able to listen. And then when kids are able to listen, we're able to talk to them about Jesus, which is the number one important thing that we can ever share with these kids. The most valuable thing we could ever do with our time is talk about Jesus to kids. And I want all the parents who bring kids to Edgewater to know my kids are totally safe. My kids are totally protected. And in Taking time to study Bible verses like this is so huge and important because it brings to face, it brings to light the truth of you just can't trust anyone. You always have to create systems where you have multiple adults and eyes everywhere so that everyone knows kids are safe. There's not an opportunity for evil. There's not a foothold for the enemy. There's not an opportunity for a wolf to come in and attack our sheep. Our kids are safe. Amen.
And so what happens here is sin is crouching at the door. There's someone who should have been safe and Tamar's not safe. And so verse 15, Amnon has raped his sister Tamar because he loved her. And in verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. What Amnon thought was love turned out to be lust and is leaving him feeling guilty and shameful and disgusted, and he sends her off. In verse 17, he called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. So David, with his daughters, seemed to have encouraged and rewarded his daughters for their sexual purity by providing for them the, these very richly adorned dresses. That this is what the dresses that the, that the virgin daughters of the king would wear. You'd be able to see him a mile away, that this was, this was a status symbol. This was pride. This was, this, those are the king's virgin daughters. And it was super important culturally that they be that way because it would allow them to achieve the most favorable marriage situation, circumstances for the future. And so Tamar, she was wearing this dress when she was attacked. And afterward, she tears the dress She's overwhelmed by shock and by grief, and she just weeps the whole way that she returns home. And in verse 20, her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And so Tamar, she lives out her days as a desolate, unmarried woman because she's no longer qualified for active consideration for any royal marriage contracts. She stays all her days as a desolate, unmarried woman in her brother Amnon's house. And David, dad, hears of all of these things. Here's how he was tricked, how he was manipulated, how Tamar went there, the discussion that was had, the attack that took place, the banishment, and he's very angry. He does nothing about it. There's no discipline. There's no intervention. He does nothing. And David, what we've seen in his past is for all political issues, if, if for everything military-wise, David was decisive, wasn't he? He's able to act, he's able to lead, but with his family, with family issues, he's mysteriously just paralyzed. Like what we've seen from David so far is he's a phenomenal warrior. He's never lost a battle. 
He's an incredible ruler that he took more land than any of Israel's other kings in history. He's a great warrior. He's a great ruler. He's a great worshiper. That if you're conservative about the Psalms that David wrote, just the ones that are directly attributed to him, 72 Psalms that generation after generation after generation would use to reflect on and worship God. He's a phenomenal worshiper. David was incredibly wealthy. Here's a statistic I think is amazing. In a three-year period, David provided 100,000 talents of gold to build the temple. In today's money, do you know how much gold, how much value that is? I get that today's dollars are changing rapidly, but as of a few days ago, 100,000 talents of gold is roughly $200 billion. Isn't that insane? David kills it everywhere. He's a phenomenal warrior, phenomenal ruler, phenomenal worshiper. He's incredibly wealthy, but at home, he's a tragic failure. It has always been this way. Like the very first marriage that David has, he's married to Miriam, Saul's daughter. We learn that she's got household gods, that she has idols that she's brought into the home. David doesn't do anything about it. David is a man after God's own heart. David knows God. David slayed Goliath, trusting that God is the true living God. But he's got idols in his home. He knows that's wrong, but I can't, I can't really deal with that right now. Now the worst thing that could ever happen to his kids happens, and he gets really upset. He gets really agitated, but ultimately he does nothing about it. Doesn't get involved, no provision, does nothing. And what we see is ultimately his son Absalom is going to step in. He's going to step up and it's going to chart a destructive course for both David and Absalom's lives. There's a, lots of men, there's lots of women, there's just lots of people who they can do really, really well at work and in their careers and in their hobbies and with their friend groups. They do really, really well in almost every single area of their life. They just are great. But at home, man, we fail. And thinking through this, I, 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 I came up with two things. I think these, these are for me, this is two reasons why I could see in ways that I can, I feel like I can lead competently. I'm not amazing. I feel like I can lead competently my team. But at home, I can kind of fail in certain areas. And I think th these are some reasons why. We know a whole lot about how we're supposed to live as Christians, especially Christians who go to Edgewater because we get amazing Bible teaching from Matt, not from me. We get amazing Bible teaching. And we know, hey, this is how, this is how God wants us to live. This is what Jesus wants from us. This is, what, this is who Jesus is. We get all this great information, but often I can have such a difficult time just actually putting it into practice. Have you ever experienced that? Like, man, I got all the knowledge, but did I do that? I wrote it in my journal and I underlined it. That was awesome, but did I actually do it? Because when I'm at home, when I'm with my kids, they see that. And often I find myself nagging my kids about the things that they should do, but I actually, I haven't led them with passion. I've just nagged them with principles you ever found that in your life where you've, you've, I've told my kid these principles over and over and over again, but I haven't actually demonstrated it well in my own life and they're not following me or they are following me and I'm not doing it. Because like David, he could have lectured all the time to his kids about the importance of sexual purity, right? He could have talked to them all the time about it. And apparently 
I mean, Tamar, his daughters, they got it. They wore the long sleeve dresses. They were serious about it. They had the purity rings on. Everyone knew where they were at in regards to that area. But I think all of David's sons were like, really, dad? Because neighbor's wife has been over quite a lot recently. Notice Uriah's been missing. And then there's this public meeting where it's in a court scenario and it comes to light that, oh, David killed Uriah. And that's why Bathsheba's been hanging out a lot. And there's a whole lot of women that David spends a whole lot of time with. I think maybe the sons start looking at dad and they say, okay, maybe that's how we're supposed to live life because we're kings. When I think about like my daughter, I think boys and girls think very differently and they learn very differently and they understand things very differently. Girls are much smarter than boys is what I'm getting at. My daughter, when I went to potty train her, help her, she was somewhere between two and three. It was literally a one-time conversation and she was potty trained. I said, hey, are you big girl? She said, I'm big girl. Yeah, big girls, they go potty in the big girl potty. Do you want to be a big girl? And she goes, yeah. And then that was it. She's potty trained. We're done. My son, same age, four months, have this conversation. And it's, are you a big boy? Yeah, I'm a big boy. And I go, you know, big boys, they go potty in the big boy potty. Babies, they go potty in a diaper. Do you want to be a big boy? And he goes, I'm a baby. (laughs) I'm like, well, don't you want to be be a big boy? He goes, no, I'm a baby. You want to go outside? Like, we're having normal, like, conversations. And he's all, I'm a baby. Just, I, I won't do it. I think maybe for David, he could explain these principles. Hey, this is how I want you to live. This is how you're supposed to be. And Tamar and his daughters grabbed onto it. But I think, and, and not all girls, but I think his boys, I think a lot of his children needed that demonstrated. I think they needed it shown. David could have lectured a lot, told his kids, demanded a moral kind of life from them, but it missed his boys and it ruined his girls. And so Colossians 3.21 says for fathers, says for us as we raise our kids, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. What's more aggravating than being told to do something while the person telling you doesn't do that? Do as I say, not as I do. Isn't that so frustrating? Because you're like, well, then what's the point? So David says, hey, sexual purity is really important. Okay, dad, the dad with multiple scandals. Our kids aren't going to be nagged into adulthood. Our kids aren't going to be nagged into following Jesus. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's how every influential Jesus follower has ever led lots and lots and lots of people to Jesus because they're living it. They're passionate about it. They see God moving in their life. They're not just using petty words or phrases or it's, hey, follow me. I'm following Jesus. We need less lectures of our kids. We need less bothering our kids. We need less demanding and less telling. We need more showing. We need to be better models. We need to stop trying to get our kids, we need to stop trying to get them to do the right thing and we need to do better at helping them become the right people. At least that's what I'm convinced of in my life is as I'm watching my kids and I see, okay, I demand a lot of my kids, but really do I live that way? Like, do I demand that my kids care for other people? Don't, don't you think, like, oh, we, we care for other people, but then every single day, do they see me serving my spouse? Every single day, I demand that my kids be generous, and I demand that my kids be forgiving, but do they see that out of me each and every day? 
Or how about how many of us, we demand from our kids that they not have obscene language come from their mouths, but when you're pretty sure they can't hear, they think you might have a second occupation as a sailor. <laughs> Do we demand that our kids leave, lead a life of purity, but we still watch those things or engage and those activities, sometimes there's, there's men and there's women who do better at work and they fail at home because we apply our leadership skills at home, but we forget them at the door. And so deep in our hearts, we want our kids to follow us and our kids want to follow you. And so if we examine ourselves, am I being the kind of person that I want my kids to follow in my joy and in the way that I handle conflict in the way that I deal with stress, in the way that I'm diligent, or how I handle criticism? Am I, am I being the kind of person I want my kids to be in the way that I forgive? Because that's what Jesus did. Didn't Jesus not just give us a bunch of rules and not just give us a set of guidelines and not just say, okay, do this, good luck. No, Jesus actually came down and modeled it and walked it out perfectly for you and I so that we could follow him in it. And yeah, we're gonna fail and we're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna ask forgiveness and we're gonna repent, absolutely. But Jesus came and lived that life so that, he can sh that we would follow him, that we would seek to become more and more like him each and every day. So I think number one, it can happen because we know a lot about the life that we're supposed to live, but we have a very difficult time putting it into practice. At least I know I do. And secondly, this is Matt's. It's the when I, then I syndrome. It's when I do this, then I'm gonna handle this. Like think about his marriage with Miriam. Think about that strange power dynamic there where Saul really didn't want David marrying his daughter in the first place. He gave him this impossible task, but David somehow overcame it and now they're married and there's this odd power dynamic where she's got idols and household gods and she's brought them into the home and now it's like, man, this is really uncomfortable and I can't really kick those things out of the house because her dad's the king. This really should have probably been handled by him before we got married and it, things are just kind of weird and they just don't talk about it and there's this bad thing in their house. And in his head, David's probably like, well, when I become king, then I'll deal with this issue. When I become king, then I can deal with this issue and have these things move out. But until then, I guess I'll just let it sit. I guess, I guess I'll just, we'll worry about it down the road when circumstances change. And I think like so many of us as dads and as moms, as students, as people, we can suffer from that when I, then I syndrome. Like for David, it's, well, when I defeat my enemies, well, then maybe I'll handle this thing with my family. Or maybe after I accumulate all of this wealth, then I'm gonna handle this problem. Or maybe after I expand my kingdom, then I'm gonna deal with my family. And what happens is with David is the when I, then I day, it never actually comes that two years go by where the issue with Tamar is not dealt with. The when I, then I day never comes. Man, don't be like David. Let's not be like David. There's no better opportunity to engage with our kids than today. Every single day, Absalom, he's gonna look at his sister at home, desolate, hurt, and he's gonna be seething in anger over a dad who's completely unengaged. The day never comes. 
So if in your head you're thinking, well, when we do this, then I'm going to take my kids on that walk, or then we're gonna go camping more, or then we're gonna spend more time together, or then we're gonna go bike riding every single day, or then I'm gonna talk to them about Jesus, or then I'm gonna share with them what I've overcome, or then I'm going to, there's no better day than today. Every single day, Absalom and Tamar, and probably even Amnon, wishes that this thing would have been dealt with, and it just never was. In verse 22, But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And after two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom lived all, invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son. Let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. But he pressed him, but he would not go, but gave it. But the king would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. So two years, two years is a long time for the king not to do anything Two years is so long, you could literally tank an entire nation's economy in that time, right? I don't know what you guys are laughing about. Two years is a super long time, and in that entire time, Amnon is watching Tamar and seeing the pain and the hurt, and every single day hoping dad will do something, and all the while he's seething in anger. And finally he goes, you know what? If a king can do whatever he wants, to anyone, even a sibling, then I guess I'll do whatever I want and I'm gonna kill this guy. And it must have been doubly sweet for Amnon because the way that it happened to Tamar is how he was able to kill Amnon. They both convinced their dad to let the sibling walk into a trap. And then during a meal, a child was destroyed. And so now, instead of having a son who's a rapist, David has a son who's a murderer and a dead son because he didn't discipline, because he didn't get involved, because he didn't intervene, because he didn't do what he should have done. And so verse 30, while they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab... The son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my Lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my Lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Who's the one who gives David this info? Jonadab, the cousin who gave 
Amnon the plan to rape Tamar. This dude sucks, <laughs> right? Like, this is the only time in the Bible he is brought up, and you're just like, wow, this guy's awful. And he somehow has, has an ear in the king's court. Is it, we're so lucky that today we don't have anyone who's wicked in the ear of people and political influence, right? <laughs> Super lucky. In verse 34, but Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amuhid, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and, there, and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So every single day for years, David will long to go to Absalom, long to go and reconcile. What's interesting is he's at Gesher. That's where Absalom ran. David's wife, Amnon's mom, was a princess from Gesher. So this is his father-in-law's house. David reasonably could have gone there at any point in peace and reconciled with Absalom. But just, man, when I do this, then I'm gonna go over there. And it never happens. And finally, in 2 Samuel 18, what will happen with David is he will weep bitterly and he will say, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son? They never reconciled. He never went and had the conversation. He never intervened. He never got involved. And he will regret it every single day of his life. He will wish he had died instead of his son. For you and me, as we look at this story, just real quick, this chapter is terrible. It is bad. Bad things have happened in it. There is deceit, there is rape, there is murder. Everything is bad. Everything in it is going bad. And you and I need to know that even when everything is bad, that maybe someone did something to you that they shouldn't have. Maybe someone was supposed to be safe and they were supposed to be trustworthy and they hurt you. Maybe someone spun a bunch of wicked lies and you got caught up in it. And maybe you are even the aggressor. Maybe it's your fault that the things in life are bad and hard right now. You were involved in something you knew you shouldn't have got involved in. You need to know that when everything is bad, when everything is mixed up, Jesus is the God who can take what man means for evil and turn it for good for the saving of many lives. That Jesus is the only God who could possibly fix the situation. Jesus is the God who can redeem anything. This chapter is here because God does not want this for you. This chapter is here so that you and I would evaluate our lives and we would say, I don't wanna raise my kids this way. I don't wanna allow footholds for the enemy that these kind of, of sins can come and be pervasive and wreck my kids. Because the things that I engage in today that I allow, that I'm permissible with, my kids are gonna believe that's fine, that's okay, it's, it's fair game. And there's a very high calling that parents have with their kids that you are being entrusted with little image bearers of God. And so maybe you have little kids. 
I hope that you'll take this to heart. I hope that you'll, you'll protect your kids. I pray that you will love them and encourage them and talk to them about Jesus all the time and not just lecture them about the life that God wants them to live, but you would model it yourself. Maybe you have older kids. Maybe you have kids and you just feel like, man, it's just too late. I, I missed the bar. Don't be like David where he's wishing he had just connected with Absalom, just talked to them, said, man, I was wrong messed up in the past. I made huge mistakes. I need forgiveness. I've changed. I, I've, I've had a relationship with Jesus and everything is different now. And maybe you don't have kids, which is great. Paul didn't have kids. And he was immeasurably influential on the church. And we need people who are kid-free who can come to Sunday service really early and love kids. We need people who are kid-free who want to invest in middle schoolers and in high schoolers and talk to them about Jesus and, know, and ensure that they are safe and ensure that they are happy with, with, their, with, with what's going on in, in life because of what Jesus is doing through, through them and for them. If everything is bad right now, this text is really, really bad. It's supposed to show us there's a lot of evil in this world and we have a God who can redeem anything. And Jesus has overcame sin and death and every single day things are supposed to be getting better and better because Jesus' spirit is in each of us and we're supposed to be walking his life out in our community each and every day. So let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us put into practice the things that we know to be true and noble and excellent and praiseworthy. I pray that you will transform and renew our minds. You'll help us to think about people the way that you think about them. I pray that you'll help us to love people the way that you love them. I pray that you'll help us to be wise with a godly wisdom that's from above about the things that we talk to our kids about, the things that we allow into our home, the things that we allow into our own minds. I pray that you will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus and that you will help us lead our kids well, that the kids of our church would become the next amazing leaders of our community and of our nation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.